Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Today I'm joined by Thomas Puplang, who is the co-founder and CEO of Ikai with his partner Yasmin Judy. Now, Ikai talks about making people less busy and students richer. So we're going to find out what that's all about. So in this conversation, we're going to explore entrepreneurship, starting out as an entrepreneur in a new country, moving from France to the US to Japan, basing themselves in Fukuoka. Thomas, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you here. And it's a couple of weeks since we met in Fukuoka last time. Now, let people understand first what Ikai is about. This thing, make people less busy and students richer. What's mm-hmm. that about? Tell us a little bit about what Ikai is. And also, what does it stand for? What's that word, Ikai? What does it mean? That maybe help people understand what the the big plan, the big idea is. So Ikai in Japanese means one time. And when we started uh, our company, we were aiming at providing students with one-time sort of job opportunity. So that was kind of the perfect fit. Um, so what the company is, is we have a, a marketplace where we match companies and individuals with university students so that they can uh, perform a one-time task, so sort of like freelancing, but focusing on students. Mm-hmm. So that's the first part of our uh project uh, then we have like a second service that was born after like a year and a half in japan that's called uh, carrier by kai where basically we use the data that we aggregate from the marketplace so about the student skills personality and interest in order to help them uh, find job opportunities so whether internship or their first job mm-hmm. okay so basically yeah so let me understand you're a marketplace for students and universities you have one service, which is to match make students and universities. And the second service is you collect these insights about students, which you, you know, have some kind of value to universities or maybe employers and so on. Yeah. Mainly for employers, like, especially given like the circumstances in terms of recruiting in Japan, uh, students have a hard time finding a job that they like. Um, and that causes a lot of like, money problem well lots of money for uh companies because they end up having a lot of mismatches so that's why we we went after that okay so your students are all japanese students in japan uh no we actually have uh 80 of japanese students and 20 percent of foreign students but right. all of them are studying in japan right and it's a completely japanese language service so if i was a a french student coming to Japan to study, I'd have to be fluent in Japanese to use the service. Is that right or not? Um, the website for now is entirely in Japanese, um, but a lot of our clients actually are looking for students who are speaking several languages. Mm. So being French and not speaking a perfect Japanese is not uh, like a definite no-no on finding a job through our platform. Right, I see. So what's broken at the moment in the, the or before you arrived in the current mm-hmm marketplace that needed Ikai to come in and create a solution? What's not working? Um, well, like the first thing like concerning the marketplace, what we saw is Yasmin and I used to study uh, in, in Japan. And when we were students, we found out that university students actually have a lot of time on their hands yeah. and they need money to go out and like kind of enjoy their university years. So we thought that, oh, that would be cool if they could just like uh, 
find some small jobs here and there. And then like one night uh, we were taking the subway and uh, we were seeing all of those salary mentally busy and like exhausted after a day of work. So we thought like when those guys come home, they don't want to necessarily like do the chores. So it was still the very beginning of the sharing economy in Japan. There were like the competition was not well established and all that kind of stuff. So we thought, oh, maybe there is an opportunity like matching that specific like segment of the population, uh, which has time, but no money with that other segment, uh, which has money, but no time. Mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, so we started as this, like a, a traditional C2C marketplace. And then actually the concept got picked up by companies. And um, yeah, and then after that, we decided to go after, to go after the data-driven uh, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you started out by matching students. And I think it's important for people to understand Japanese universities are not as hard as the high schools, right? The high schools is where the real hard work happens, isn't it? And then they have the entrance exam. And a lot of students, once they get into a university, they kind of put their feet up a little bit, don't they? They, you know, compared to other universities in different countries, it's the other way around, yeah. more or less, right? So students yeah, have a lot of, their, of time. Yeah, it's kind of their like relaxed time. Let's say. <laughs> like before that, they they are working like crazy, and after that, when they enter a company, well, I mean, everyone knows what the corporate life looks like in Japan. Right. So, yeah, it's kind of the the only four years where they can like relax, have fun, and enjoy. Okay. So you started out by matchmaking these students who had spare time with companies and well, individuals. private individuals, right? Okay. What well, to do, yeah. like, what kind of tasks, what kind of jobs were you matchmaking them for? Uh, we started, like, very simple with uh, things like uh, walk my dog, pick up my dry cleaning, right. uh, clean my apartment, clean my car, uh, cooking, uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And were the Japanese open to that? Because they didn't have any kind of sharing economy model beforehand, did they, really? They didn't have yeah. that kind of personal sharing economy. What What was that like, getting Japanese people to accept that? Uh, it was tough. Uh, even though, like, Japan is a very, like, safe country, let's say, uh, having Japanese people accept to have a stranger enter their life was very challenging. Yeah. So we were actually, like, spending a lot of time in customer acquisition, which was not... Uh, good for us because like in order to scale the business it was too slow and like we were wasting time and resources basically Mm. so that's why we kind of pivoted at some point towards like more towards company so actually now our like individual like c2c part of the marketplace is uh, growing organically Mm. and we spend more time advertising to companies because the companies first they started to use ikai like by themselves without us promoting anything so we thought like, oh, we have clients actually asking for us, so why not go there? That would make more sense. And um, and those guys also like post more often. The tasks that they post for the students are more like challenging and allow students to scale up more easily. Hmm. And um, the revenues as well are more interesting because companies pay way more. Right, of course. That's interesting, isn't it? You've got this two different forces in your marketing, like a push and a pull marketing. Hmm. On the one hand, when you started, you were trying to push this idea of letting strangers into private people's lives, whether it's walking the dog or maybe cleaning or that kind of thing. And Japanese people weren't used to that. So you had to spend a lot of resources getting Japanese people to accept that. And that didn't have a natural momentum because it would be hard work. And that's a cultural thing you were fighting. 
But at the same time, whilst you're doing that, you're having these companies come and pull you, pull you along, right? And say, well, we're not marketing to companies, but companies are coming to us and pulling us in this direction and saying, hey, we want this service too. So did you make a conscious decision when you say pivot then to say, right, okay, let's focus now on companies? Yeah, it was it was actually like a tough decision um, because uh, when Yasmin and I started Ikai, what we really wanted to do is have like a positive impact on the Japanese society and in that like specific like mindset of having the salaryman being like exhausted. Yeah. So we really wanted to focus on uh, the C2C marketplace. But I mean, what we realized is um, the like the marketplace for businesses is actually creating revenue. And uh, if we keep going into the C2C uh, only, uh, the business is going to die in the end. Mm. So we thought, let's make a, like uh, the choice that we have to make. Let's focus on companies and it's going to allow us to keep going. And actually some individuals can still use the, the marketplace. Mm. Okay. So let me understand. You're effectively connecting students with companies that just sounds like a recruitment platform to me surely that that already exists in japan there's there's hundreds of recruitment platforms what were you doing differently well um the thing was like what we would be closer to would be like the traditional like 10 staff agencies mm -hmm. uh the only thing is that in japan 10 staff agencies work a bit differently uh there are not a working on like very, very short term contracts. They are more into like three months and over kind of right. contract. Yeah. And um, so basically they had clients asking them for those like very short term jobs, like one day, two days or only a few hours, but they didn't have the resources. Like for whatever reason, they never thought about going after university students. Um, so actually we're not competitors of 10 staff agencies. They're actually using our services um, by like uh, outsourcing the jobs that they have from their clients through all that mm. sort of that partnership. Right. So if you were to go to France, maybe especially if you went to the US or most countries in Europe, UK, for example, that idea of getting, you know, staff to cover for one or two days, that's normal. That's everywhere. Right. But you come yeah. to Japan and people aren't doing it. And it's interesting. It takes a foreigner if I could use that word, to see it and say, why not do this? Because that's works in other countries and that's what people want. And it wasn't a, a local Japanese company run by a Japanese who could provide that solution. But it, it's interesting. There's a history of that in Japan, especially where you are in Kyushu, right? There's a history of people coming from outside and bringing new ideas to that part of Japan. And that idea spreads throughout japan did you find any resistance to that when you were doing it did you find people no. was that just like okay economically it makes sense to us let's do it um well i mean i guess that like every other startup like some people told us that our thing was stupid but right. i mean that was fine um we 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 thought and still think that there is a huge opportunity in that space so we are going for it but like in general terms we didn't have like any like friction or people like uh, going after us saying us like you cannot do it. Uh, people were actually very supportive. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Who, who, without naming names, what kind of people were telling you it was stupid? Uh, don't don't like, tell uh, me names. Just give me types no, no, of yeah. people. <laughs> uh, no, no, like a, a few like very let's say traditional Japanese companies. Uh, 
So like, let's say the old mindset, if okay. I can say that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's important to talk about that, isn't it? Because as an entrepreneur, that's the conversations you have to deal with. It's the conversations that put doubt in your head. Or, mm -hmm. you know, it may not be companies, it may be people, it may be people around you say, hey, that's stupid, or that won't work. Or Did that affect you at all? Did you just ignore that? Or did it make you think harder about your business model when you heard those kind of things from traditional companies? Well, we had to think about it because those people were potentially clients for us. So we had to like kind of uh, think, like, what could we do differently so they could accept us? Mm -hmm. um, and in the end, um, at the beginning, we were like, a, yeah, let's say a very foreigner company, like the way we handled our contracts and all that kind of things. And like by being a bit more Japanese, we could actually convince some of those people who told us that what we were doing was not good, uh, that they could actually work with us. So, yeah, we had to like uh, take the best of both worlds, let's say. So what did you mean by be a bit more Japanese? Was that simply um, speaking the language or behaving differently yeah there's like the be it. speaking the language was never an issue um i mean yes and i don't speak uh very good japanese and we could like do business without too many problems uh in japan in fukuoka um no it's more like a behavior kind of thing or um even the way like japanese companies are going to see like financial transactions and that kind of things. Like for us, it's not a problem to pay with a credit card when we have a company. Mm. For a Japanese company, especially if it's like an old one, they still want like the good old uh, bank transfer. Yeah. Uh, which for us was like totally counterproductive. But um, so we had to kind of adapt to their ways. They didn't ask for a fax, no? Because I've still, oh, still see did. that. <laughs> <laughs> they did. That's something that amazes people about Japan, isn't it? When people think about Japan, they think of high technology, but they don't know that there's still companies that use faxes <laughs> and they share their yeah. fax numbers, don't they? And they use fax to send things to people. Yeah, so, we actually, like, uh, that's something that we said we would never do. We would <laughs> never buy a fax machine. So we always go to the convenience store on the, right. the street <laughs> to send our, our faxes. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, so I'm just curious as well, just before I want to talk about your journey, but this kind of comes into it. You'd say that you and Yasmin both don't speak great Japanese. I'm really surprised yep. by that because, well, you've studied here, but the point that surprises me is you're able to do business in Japan. And I think people need to understand that most Japanese people in business, they can read some English but speaking, often the level is very low or they don't have the confidence to speak English to somebody. So they may be able to read an email, but if you try to speak to them, it may be very, very difficult. So I'm amazed that you say you're able to do business even though you don't speak great Japanese. Either you're being really humble about your Japanese or you're just super confident that these things don't yeah. matter. Well, what's, the, what's the answer there? How are you able to do it? Um, well... Our Japanese is getting better. Like when we started, it was like really low um, and we started to take classes again. So like, I guess that helps a little. Let's say that our understanding of Japanese is good, um, but our speaking is the problem. Um, yeah. So uh, very often we have like a conversation that uh, with our clients speaking to us in Japanese and us answering in English and it uh, works out. Also, we have part of our staff who is Japanese and all of our staff who are Japanese can handle English. Mm -hmm. So they can like translate for us. Um, 
So that's basically how we, we worked from the beginning. Uh, when we just started Ikkai, the first thing that we did is since we were working with students, we took uh, interns. And the younger Japanese generation, uh, most of them, well, not most of them, but a lot of them can uh, actually speak English mm. properly. So we actually like started using uh, interns from the very beginning, helping us with translations, with like uh, uh, interpretation and all that kind of things. That's how we 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 worked. Mm. Okay, I, I think it's also inspiring for anybody listening who may be thinking about moving to a new country and worried that they can't do business there. You know, I think you prove that it's possible to do business in a country where you don't, you're not fluent in the language as long as you have the motivation, right? You want yeah. to make it happen. And you, you made a key point. You, your understanding of Japanese is good, but your speaking is probably the weakest part, right? And that, that understanding is really important. I think that's a personal skill, isn't it? That you've lived in different cultures, different countries. You develop an understanding of people, which I don't know if you can train that at school, but that's a really important skill in business, isn't it? That you can, if you sit with Japanese people, yes, they're Japanese, but maybe they're to you they're more like a similar to you they're more human being and you've seen people in america you've seen people in france and you see the connections with all these people and that really helps when it comes to business and that's more important than language that i feel personally yeah i mean especially like in kyushu what we yesterday and i noticed in kyushu is uh Kyushu people are very proud of their food, for example. Mm. So, like for us, our strategy from the beginning when we we're meeting with clients is kind of get to their heart. So we went for the food card um, very often. Like one of the first questions that we would ask them was where we could find a like, good ramen in Fukuoka, right. and it kind of uh, lights up the 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 mood. Like people at the beginning of the meetings tend to be like always very stressed out and. Yeah, Especially yeah. since like those guys are like older than us and in a traditional Japanese company setting, they I mean you've seen them like they have like all stood up ties and all that kind of things. When we start talking about like how much we love Fukuoka, how much we love their regions and all that kind of stuff, usually it helps a lot to mm. kind of connect with them through the Japanese culture. That's so important, you know. In in any business, people always buy people first. It's always people, the person, then the product, then the price, isn't it? And it's so important that when you sit with that person, that then, you know, Ikai is not what they're buying, or the price mm -hmm. is not why they're buying it. It's it's you and Yasmin that they're buying first, right? So that's 80% yeah. of the sale. So if you can connect with that person, th this is advice for any entrepreneur, any founder, it's so important. You may have the best product in the world, but if you don't connect with that person on the personal level, then you won't be able to sell that product or that service anytime, right? And mm. you, you talk about connecting with Japanese people about food. Let's talk about that in Fukuoka a little bit and why you're in Fukuoka. Yeah. Now, we met in Fukuoka a few weeks back. It's, a, it's a, you know, an amazing city. It's a lot smaller than Tokyo. I don't know, what is it, about 2 million people? I can't remember. Uh, what 1.5. 1.5 million people. So it's at that kind of level where it's, it's a city, but it's not too big, which is great. Mm -hmm. It has some fantastic nature. It's right out on the west of Japan. If you don't know Japanese geography, it's right out on the west side. So it's as far from Tokyo as you can really get, right? Which is kind of interesting because if you think about America, if 
you know, the startup scene was where all the money and the education was. The startup scene would be in New York or Boston, right? But it's not. It's, it, again, it's right on the West Coast. It's out mm -hmm. there in California around the Bay Area and San Francisco and so on. So it's interesting that Fukuoka is kind of developing into this small startup scene in Japan, which really doesn't have a strong startup scene compared to many other countries. So let's talk about Fukuoka and why you're there and talk about some of the reasons why other people should check out Fukuoka. So tell us first, when did you move first to Fukuoka? Uh, it was about three years ago, mm -hmm. the first time. First time was three years ago, Yasmin and I were business school students. And in order to graduate, we had to do an exchange uh, program um, to like foreign country. And uh, we had the choice basically between going back to the US, but we already did that. And uh, the other choice was, uh, I mean, going for something totally different. And we've always been kind of passionate about Japan. So we thought, okay, let's, let's go for it. And uh, turned out that, um, so Bordeaux, where we're from in France, is a sister city with Fukuoka. So there was an exchange program between our school and one school in Japan in Fukuoka. That's it. So we went for it. I mean, we before that, Fukuoka was not on the map for us. We didn't right. know about it, like nothing. Now, it's the same for most people. Like people don't know about Fukuoka. No. Um, and then, so we... We spent a week in Tokyo before that, and then we arrived in Fukuoka, and we were, were like, "Oh, that's countryside. There is nothing to do. What, what, what did we yeah. get ourselves into?" And um, I mean, after two weeks, we were just in love with the city. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's uh, as you said, it's not too big. It's really like human size. You can cross the city by bike. It's a lot of parks. We have the beach. Um, people are super nice. Very good food. Um, it's very easy to get around Kyushu, and Kyushu is just amazing. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, well, in my opinion, best city in Japan. Wasn't your natural tendency to choose Tokyo first? Because that's the place that you have to go. Did you think about Tokyo? Did you try Tokyo before Fukuoka? Yeah, we tried to, well, I mean, at that time, like three years ago, we didn't have the choice because like, I mean, we were at school, so right. we had to come to, to Fukuoka. Uh, yeah, we had to come to Fukuoka. We decided to come to Tokyo before because, uh, I mean, Tokyo is sort of, in our mind, it was like Tokyo was Japan, so we wanted to see for ourselves what it was like. Um, but that was the only reason. Like we were not like Yasmin and I are from like very small uh, cities. Like Yasmin mm -hmm. is from like a like hundred thousand uh, people city, and me from like a fifty people village. So uh, we we tend to like go for the smaller uh, size kind right. of city. So um, yes, yeah, Tokyo was good, but not our cup of tea right i don't know if french people drink tea but anyway <laughs> let's talk about fukuoka and let's talk about why you love it and yeah you'd mentioned food as well so let's start there because it's a little bit of a food capital isn't it for japan i mean japan's famous for its food but what's special about fukuoka what is it that you love about that city um i i don't know how they do but like chefs in fukuoka make every food better uh, they, that's a talent that they have. Uh, you can have like very good Italian food, French food, uh, obviously Japanese food, but like, everything is going to be tasty. Um, that's, that's something that I've never seen anywhere else. Uh, even in France, when I go to Italian restaurants, I don't feel like I'm eating Italian really. Hmm. But in Japan, it, it tastes literally the same. It tastes like home. So 
that's something that they do very well. And then like the traditional dishes, like Japanese dishes from uh, Kyushu, like the motsunabe or um, even the tonkotsu ramen. Uh, that's something that I could not live without now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what about the places? Do you, I know you're from France. If, if you eat at many of the French restaurants in Japan, they're, they're often high level, very expensive, aren't they? When, you, when yeah. you eat out in Fukuoka, do you eat at those expensive places or are you kind of eating at the stalls? Because there seems to be like stalls everywhere on the street, like you would see mm. in Asia, but you don't really see anywhere else in, well, especially if you go to Tokyo, you don't see those yadai, those stalls, which are parked out on the just on a corner by a crossing right with a guy with a gas stove running you know cooking up ramen or something yeah what do you tend to do when you go out and eat in fukuoka uh we go in between those places um i like the very expensive one we're not very attracted by them uh and uh the yatai actually the thing with the yatai is i feel it's more for um I'm a foreigner, but I'm going to say foreigners, like for <laughs> visitors, <laughs> for visitors in Fukuoka, so like tourists. Um, like if you go around the Nakatsu River when it's yeah, like yeah. very beautiful and you have like a, a lot of yatai, um, you can actually see that most of the people who are eating there are not locals. It's mostly like tourists or like very, like, well, very old Japanese, like the older generation of Japanese living in Kyushu. Uh, but the young generation, I would say that we tend to go more in the like small, like, yeah, like small shop, traditional izakaya, that kind of things. Like the, those places that are like a bit hidden in the street, uh, but that we love very much. Mm. Let, let's talk about the the startup scene in Fukuoka because it's <laughs> received a lot of attention recently, and Fukuoka was nominated as the startup city by the you know the Tokyo government. So that was where they were going to focus their efforts in creating a startup scene. But creating a startup scene is always a challenge, isn't it? Because if the government gets behind it, it can either work out really well, like in Singapore, or not well, like in other countries, which I won't name. But the <laughs> point is, is that, you know, when it's driven by local government or top level national government, it's very difficult to get it right. So what's the situation like in for startups in Fukuoka? Is there a growing startup scene? Why is Fukuoka a place that startups should consider? You know, why there and not Tokyo or even, you know, other cities in Asia? So let's talk a bit about the startup scene there. What are your thoughts on what it is in terms of what attracts people to Fukuoka for the on the business side? Mm -hmm. Um the startup, I mean, the startup scene is still very young, so it's it's kind of difficult to kind of compare it to other cities or countries. But uh, the thing is, so in Fukuoka, it's like clearly handled by the government. Uh, the government is a hundred percent behind the startup initiatives. But the thing is, is, contrary to what we could imagine, the Japanese government is doing a very good job. Mm. Um, I was I was honestly surprised because I. At least in France, when the administration is sometimes involved, you can like make things slower. Uh, in uh, in Japan, uh, this well, I'm not talking about other things, but like this particular thing, they are doing a very good job, and they are actually going uh, uh, above and beyond uh, what uh, we could imagine. They are always here to help. Uh, they really want uh, Fukuoka to yeah to become that kind of startup capital of of uh, of Japan. So they are doing everything they can for that. Um, after that, what attracted us to Fukuoka in terms of business and startups was, um, I mean, Fukuoka, the government like created a lot of, uh, 
different, um, how do you say, uh, initiatives mm -hmm. like to help foreign entrepreneurs settle in Fukuoka. So there, they have this like startup visa thing uh, that can help you like start your business. Uh, they have uh, loans for startups that are very uh, good, in my opinion. Uh, it's almost like free money. Um, then um, there is a subsidy program uh, that helps you pay your rent for your office and your personal accommodation. Um, so all of this combined is kind of created like a, a very nice place to boot, like bootstrap your business. Mm. And uh, after that, just in terms of the city, Fukuoka is very good, in my opinion, to kind of test your ideas. Um, in Tokyo, it's a lot of people, so it's potentially a lot of business, but there are also a lot of other businesses. So in order to get your share of market, it can be like more difficult. Fukuoka is smaller, less competition, but it's still 1.5 million uh, habitants. Mm. So uh, you have a lot of potential customers in Fukuoka and it's maybe easier. People are also maybe more open-minded. The population is uh, in average younger than Japan. It's one of the rare cities in Japan when the population is uh, still growing. Yeah. So, um, I mean... I could go on and on about Fukuoka. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's talk about the. Let's talk about some of the numbers so people can understand and what's possible. If I was, let's say, I was moving from Singapore and I wanted to start up in Fukuoka, just out of mm -hmm. interest. It, I don't know if anybody is planning to do that. Any listeners planning to do that? But just just explore this a little bit. So let's say I'm a Singapore resident and I wanted to move to Fukuoka to start up a business. Could I get a, a startup loan from the government? Would they be, because this is always the challenge, isn't it? In Japan is lending money to people who aren't Japanese. I mean, it's very difficult mm -hmm. in the real estate market. Would it be possible for, I mean, obviously you're not the program manager, so it's a bit unfair to ask you, but from what you know, would that be possible? Yeah, it's doable. Um, the thing is you have to go like, let's say do the right steps. Like if you come from Singapore, like take time to apply to the startup visa, I would say, because this, uh, when you apply to the startup visa, you're kind of uh, vouched by Fukuoka City. Like they have to accept uh, you as uh, getting the startup visa. So it, they actually go, uh, they have like a committee that goes through your business plan and checks that everything is in order and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So if you get the startup visa, that's the first proof that you have your uh, thing together. Uh, so when you're going to go to uh, the bank and apply for the loans, so first, those are like special loans and they are made for startups and made for, not made for foreigners, but they are made for startups. Um, so they know they are not expecting you to make like uh, $10 million within your first year and all that kind of thing. They are like pretty flexible, actually. Um, and uh, it, contrary to what people could think, it doesn't take that long. Uh, it takes about a month altogether to apply for the loan, get the, the appointments with the, the people from the bank and then receive the money. So it's actually pretty fast, but yeah. that's totally doable. The only thing is you have to be reasonable in the amount that you, you're going to ask. In average, I would say that they give between three to seven million yen. Right. It's about $30,000, uh, right? $50,000. Yeah, yeah. Around that. Because, uh, it's advert like they advertise that they can give up to 20, uh, I think it's 20 million. Yeah. Up to 20 million yen. Uh, but honestly, so far, uh, for my part, I've never seen anyone get that much right, money. Right, of course. And I mean, the question is like, do you really want to have a $200,000 loan for your startup right up front? But, right, right. but that's not a discussion. Uh, but I would say it's easy to, 
uh, to get like between thirty to fifty thousand dollars. Right. I mean, that's good seed money, isn't it? That's good to yeah. build a prototype to test an idea. And you got a few months of burn time as well. And you also talked about subsidies as well. I'm surprised to hear that. That's the first time I've heard that from any city where local government is subsidizing rent. I mean, mm. to what extent are they doing this? Is it only for people on the startup visa? What's the, I mean, that's a, that's a real bonus for anybody in that situation, right? What do you know about yeah. that scheme? Uh, so yes, it's only for people who took the startup visa and it's up to 1 million yen, I think. $10,000, um, right? Yeah, it's up to 1 million yen and, uh, the only, and the last condition is, uh, if you get that subsidy, they basically are doing it because they want you to stick with Fukuoka as headquarter of your company. So you have the, uh, obligation let's say to stay in Fukuoka for a few years uh if you if you subscribe to those subsidies right okay so these are all very interesting options for a founder aren't they because you're not giving away any equity and you're getting mm. very cheap money into yeah. the business obviously you have to repay it but the terms in which you get it you, you probably couldn't get anywhere else in the world so that's all a bonus and it's a great way to start and especially for a foreigner it's so difficult to get credit in japan outside of the startup scene right that that has to be reminded to any listener you know maybe if you work for some bank or you work for sony for 20 years as a foreigner maybe you could borrow money but any other exception no it's very difficult so those are all good things worth checking out so with your situation as well let's talk about your funding as well we don't have to go into the details and the numbers but mm -hmm. you you met Stephen Yu, who's also on our Angel podcast, on our ATP mm -hmm. Angels podcast. Now, that was an interesting story because he, he seed funded in your business. He, what was the situation there? Because there aren't many angel investors in Japan. I don't know, especially in Fukuoka. It's a growing scene. As you say, the startup scene is new. Mm -hmm. So how did that happen? Because he, he moved to Fukuoka from Singapore, right? So yeah. was that by chance that you met each other? Or can you tell us a little bit how that happened? Because people will be interested to know how can they also meet angel investors in Japan? Uh, yeah, like for, uh, I mean, the story with Stephen, uh, Stephen and David was, yeah, it was total luck. Uh, we, I mean, uh, those guys, uh, they came to Fukuoka, I think like a few years back and decided that they wanted to move in, to move here at some point. And I mean, I guess right time, right place, we ended up meeting them and uh, they got involved with us as like uh, first as advisors and then uh, became uh, investors in, in our business. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but yeah, it was total luck, I guess, from the beginning, right time, right place. Uh, but uh, yeah, as you said, it, it, can be, it can be a problem to financial investors in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, a huge problem, actually. Uh, we, it took us quite some time to like find, not to find investors, but to find the right, to find the right investors. Uh, that's because Yasin and I are all for the smart money, not just the money. Yeah. So we, we wanted like people who could actually get involved with us. Uh, not only with like financials, but also help us on like day to day with the business, make introductions and all that kind of things. So we really needed people who were like established in Japan. Um, so most of our investors ended up not being Japanese, but being foreigners who've been living in Japan for quite a few years now. So they have the network and they have the open mindset and the, they understand the risk taking behind yeah. uh, like founding a startup. 
So that's I, I guess that's the thing that's missing uh, for let's say Japanese uh, potential Japanese people who could be potential angel investors. Uh, they are kind of risk averse, uh, yeah. which is like, totally against the concept of a startup, pretty much. So uh, yeah, they prefer putting their money under the mattress rather than on the startup. Right, right. That's the missing piece of the puzzle, isn't it? In the Japanese startup scene, is the yeah. risk risk capital, isn't it? There's ca- there's plenty of capital in Japan. There's plenty of money swilling around, but the problem is, is there there isn't a lot of money going into risky or sorry risk. So that basically means, you know, that you you have people who make money, maybe from a tech company or maybe an exit, and they don't tend to then put that money back into the startup scene like they would do in the US, right? That's why, you you know, the angel, the angel investor uh, network grows as a sort of second uh, stage in the ecosystem growth, right? Because you have to have people who have successful startups who sell or exit those startups who then take that money and put it back into the startup scene, right? That's where those angel investors come from. And and right now in Japan, it's maybe, well, especially in Fukuoka, it's too early. You know, mm-hmm. we need this first generation of startups to grow, to exit, and then to come back with their money. You, for example, you know, <laughs> Thomas and Yasmin, when Ikai is successful and you exit, you take your money and then you invest back in startups in Fukuoka, right? But that may be three, four, five, seven years from now, right? We don't know. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the natural cycle. We're not there yet. But it's interesting you said you met Stephen by chance, but that's how it happens, right? You make your own luck in these situations. Yeah, exactly. You have to get out there. You have to open the door for luck to walk in, right? And that's kind of what you did. So let's talk about your journey now as an entrepreneur. Now that you, you've had funded, you're growing the business. Um, mm-hmm. Are you seeking more funding from now on? Have you got, are you going through a raise at the moment? What's your current situation? Yeah. We are actually looking for funds. Uh, we, I mean, our first round of investments uh, allowed us to do what we wanted to do. And uh, we are actually like uh, going well now, but we want to accelerate the things. Uh, so we're actually looking at, uh, two million, uh, dollars now mm-hmm. as a seed round. Um, yeah, so that's actually why I'm in Tokyo these days because like all of the VCs and, uh, investors are here. No one, no one's in Fukuoka. So I right. have to like, spend a lot of time in Tokyo these days. Mm-hmm. But that's what you got to do, right? You got to get up and you got to yeah. travel and that's how it works, right? Okay. Yeah. So you, you're growing this business. You're spending a lot of time now, I guess, talking to people who can help grow your business, whether that's advisors or investors and so on. And you've grown as a business as well, as, as well as an individual. So I'm curious to know if you were to sit with a younger Thomas uh-huh. before you started this journey, before you came to Japan, what do you know now? as an entrepreneur particularly that you didn't know back then, because this is your first real big effort as an entrepreneur, isn't it? So, and especially with the kind of figures, the kind of sums of money you're talking about, this is the first real big project. What do you know now, if you were to sit with a younger Thomas and tell him about what is coming up and maybe his expectations are a little bit different back then as to what they are now. Can you share some of that advice? 
Um, yeah, I would uh, like the first thing I would go with is uh, concerning building the team uh, for the startup. Uh, that's something we were not prepared for. Um, we, um, yeah, I would do things differently now, like in how we would handle our hiring in Japan, especially. Like, uh, um, I mean, we have to, something that we didn't keep in mind is that in Japan, um, people are not uh, really into startups yet. So mm -hmm. they cannot uh, always understand what it involves to be working in a startup and all that kind of thing. So now when Yasin and I, hire someone, we actually like make things very clear about like what's what's a startup, how we are expecting people to work and how we are expecting people to to behave as well. Because um the problem is that um Japanese employees can tend to be um especially if they've been working in like the traditional right, yeah. Japanese corporate world before, they I mean they follow the book and they just follow the book. Yeah. Uh which is not enough for a startup. So like now we are more careful with this. Like we thought that we could like get by and kind of change people, but uh, it's 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 tough. That's like the first thing. Like be more careful in terms of uh, recruiting. And the second one would be, uh, I mean, we did a lot of mistakes in the beginning. So, of course. Uh, uh, yeah, we did a lot. Like uh, our first MVP that we outsourced. Uh, that was. Worst idea in the world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you have to make the mistake to learn, right? That's the point. Yeah, you know? exactly. If you're not but, making a mistake, uh, you're not learning. That, that, was, that was awful. Yeah. Um, it's interesting and, your point about the recruitment because it's so important for a startup, isn't it? And I think that you've learned that you can't change people. And that's something that a lot of founders learn the hard way. And I learned that as well. And I think that that can suck up so much resources and energy from you hoping that you can change somebody to be more like your worldview, your way of thinking. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's tough. If you get the wrong person in at the beginning, that can suck up so much energy. I think yep. with, with your kind of startup, the best people would be people more like you Japanese who have maybe world experience or something like that, because already they've been trained right in this, different ways of thinking and that's what you're trying to do is get people to think differently in your startup right yeah that, that's a smaller market but now you've probably got a better idea of what you want and what you don't want but that's all part of the learning process isn't it yeah exactly um and uh the second thing would be um i mean it's everything that's related to the japanese culture like by itself uh like at the at the beginning, I would say that um, we we always wanted to be respectful to the Japanese culture and do it the Japanese way, mm -hmm. and that's not always the best way to do it. Um, turns out that even if we do all of the efforts that we want, even if we uh, speak a perfect Japanese, even if we like uh, respect every single protocol and all that kind of things, we are always going to be seen as foreigners. Yeah. And what Jason and I noticed is that. Um, now we are more playing with what we call the gaijin card yeah. so like the for, foreigner card um and it's actually helping i mean that's uh that's uh, we are actually using uh the fact that they do not consider us as japanese to maybe be more aggressive in ourselves or um like request meetings that uh we could not get necessarily if we would like uh do it the Japanese way. So, um, yeah, I guess that's, that's something that I would tell my younger self to, 
that's that was only two years ago though. So that's, <laughs> wow. that, yeah. such an insightful lesson as well and you, you can be too respectful of a culture can't you and that can work negatively for you yeah. because I think anywhere you go, especially when you're moving to a new country or doing business in a new country, th this is a really important lesson, especially for somebody just starting out if they're listening, is that people want to put you in a box. No matter how open-minded we are as individuals, as entrepreneurs, it helps me if I can put you in a box because that helps me relate to you, relates to my experience with you and my previous experience with people like you, you know, whether it's somebody who's French or somebody who studied in the US or whatever. And it's the same in Japan. So when you speak to Japanese business people and you're behaving like Japanese, they don't know what box you go in, right? You're, you're kind of look a bit like a Japanese person, but you obviously look foreign, right? So that confuses them. So your point about now playing the gaijin card is really interesting. And I think that comes with confidence, doesn't it? That actually, you're not going to try and be Japanese, you're going to respect Japanese behaviors, which is fine, but you're going to also celebrate your foreignness, right? Your difference. Because yeah. that then is, is a great brand for you, isn't it? And I think yeah, the, yeah. More, the, the more that you do that, the more that you're confident in your difference, which is difficult in a place like Japan, but you know, that will attract people. Maybe not every Japanese company will like you for that, but you'll find that some Japanese companies will love you. And that's really important because they may be thinking, actually, you know, I don't want to deal with this Japanese company anymore. I need somebody who can be a bit more dynamic. And then they see this foreign you know, these foreigners running this company, I think, yes, I want to deal with them. So it's really important. Yeah. And I think that anybody listening, a founder is don't edit yourself, right? At the end of the day, you know, you have to celebrate your differences. It may be uncomfortable, but I think at the end of the day, if you're confident in being different, you know, ultimately that's your brand, you'll stand out and you'll attract people to what you do. Yeah, I mean, especially like as a startup, I mean, we are here to kind of change things. So we better like play that card 100%. Like Yasmin and I had like a very good surprise last week where a company ended up contacting us and telling us, oh, we are working with such company, which is like a huge Japanese player with thousands of employees and billions of dollars in revenue. And that company came to us and told us, okay, we are tired of those guys. Like they are not oh. uh, what we are looking for. And I mean, we are just a startup. We have like basic revenue. We have five employees, but we are bringing something new. And that's what they are looking for. Actually, they, they want to get out of that, like a uh, traditional slow, uh, let's say Japanese way of doing things. Wow. At least for the re recruiting space. That's, that's something. That's a great story. So somebody contacted you and said they didn't want to work with you because they work with these big guys, but the big guys came back to you and said, we don't want to work with those guys because they're not flexible enough. We want to work with you. Yeah, basically. Right. <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's great for you. All power to you. So it's been fantastic speaking to you, Thomas. It's, you know, inspiring listening to your journey and hearing about you and Yasmin and what you're doing. I think you are blazing a trail possibly for people that want to do what you do. I mean, your story shows so many things about what's possible and not thinking about 
you know, maybe the technical aspects, like I don't speak a language, I'm not local here, all those kind of things. So I think that gives people real confidence to follow what you're doing, following your footsteps. You know, I know it's only three years in for you now in Ikai and Fukuoka, but that's enough for people to look at that. And people may look at your story and think, yeah, I want to do that. So before you go, I have to ask you to share some links that people can find out more about you if people want to reach out with you if you're a company interested in ikai services and or you are interested in thomas and yasmin and their story as well where can we find out more about you um i mean our website https uh slash slash ikai.com and then we're on every social media um so the best way to actually contact yasmin on i or, or me is going to be by linkedin Okay. Uh, that would be the, the easiest way. And uh, if you want to get in touch with the company, either in Japanese or in English, if all, every single of our social media works perfectly. Fantastic. And what kind of people are you interested in getting in touch with? Who would you like to reach out to you? Uh, anyone looking to work with students in Japan. I mean, we're here to help. And uh, if, uh, I mean, now we're fundraising. So if any investor like our story and what we're trying to do, that's always contact us. We would love to explore as well. Excellent. That's Thomas Pupalan, everybody. Thomas, really enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you for coming and sharing your journey with us. We wish you all the best and want to follow your growth as well. So let's let's do part two, you know, sometime, <laughs> you know, in the future, maybe after your raise, see how things are expanding. You know, I think people want to be part of this journey and find out where you're going. So come back on and share that journey with us. Yeah, we can do that in Fukuoka. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.